morning, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we will dismiss young people. The days are going to work with them in the upper room, so you can head on out right now. Yes, the days are going to work with them. Good. If the days didn't get up, I was going to start panicking, but they did. We're good. All right, so young people head on up there, and you're getting to Mark chapter 1. And I want you to picture in your mind just for a few moments this. Here's a, a CEO who has just been hired, and he's supposed to take over a company that is falling apart. I mean, it really, really looks bad. That's not the kind of job you want to take, you know? As a CEO, you don't want to come into a situation like that. But he knows completely what's going on. He knows what's happening. He knows that things look really bleak. And so he has already spent a lot of time, and he's developed a plan. He's got an idea. He's got a direction he's going. And he comes in the first day, and you know the phrase we use for it? He hits the ground running. You know, he is ready to go. I mean, he pulls in all his, all, all maybe the main people, the, the, the bosses and those over others, and he has meetings all morning, and he tells them, look, here's what we're going to do, and here are the changes we're going to make, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And, and he does. He hits the ground running. And, and it seems like day in and day out for the first, what, probably month, maybe a couple months, maybe even a year, I, who knows how long it takes but this guy just gives himself, and he is just running, 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 running. All the time, there's something else that needs to be done because he wants things to succeed. He wants, he wants the company to make it. And maybe his, you know, his job is certainly on the line. You know? So he's going to be motivated to do that. But the whole idea is he hits the ground, and man, it's just for one thing after another. It's just we got to keep moving. I told you last week, we were going to begin to look at the book of Mark. And the book of Mark is a, is a book that, if you want to describe it, he hits the ground running. He begins in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, and he says, look, this is the beginning of the gospel. So I'm going to just jump right in at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unlike Matthew and Mark, or, sorry, Matthew and Luke and John in the gospels, who take time to go back to, Matthew goes back to the genealogies and has all those names of people that you don't care about, but, you know, are important. They're important to know. And then you have Luke, who, who kind of tells you the story and weaves this beautiful story of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's always read at Christmas, right? And then you have John, who goes all the way back to before the world began. And he talks about the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. And, uh, and he talks all about how the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Mark dispenses with all of that. And Mark just starts, I mean, he just starts, well, he hits the ground, running. And today, Mark chapter 1 is exactly that. Uh, I know it's hard to explain it, but this chapter is one event after another event. Okay, I'm going to walk you through it. Uh, in, oh, by the way, verses one to, verse 1, he says it's the beginning of the gospel. Verses 2 through verse 7, I believe it is, or verse 8, he gives you the whole ministry of John the Baptist. That's it. Just seven verses. Let's get done with that. That's where it all started. Old Testament talked about a forerunner. Here's the forerunner. Now he's gone. Verse 8, he t begins, or verse 9, he begins with the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he just tells us one thing after another. In verse 9, Jesus is baptized. In verse 12, he immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted. In verse 14, he's found preaching as he walks by the Sea of Galilee. And while he's there, he calls some disciples, verses 16 to 20. 
He enters into Capernaum, verses 21 to 28. And immediately after he spends a little bit of time there, actually, immediately after he, he meets in the synagogue, he goes to Peter and Andrew's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if Peter was happy about that or not, but we'll, we'll go on from there. And, uh, and that evening, this whole city comes out to be healed, verses 32 to 34. Early the next morning, he prays. The next day is spent traveling and preaching, and actually next days are spent traveling and preaching, verse 39. He heals a leper, verses 40 to 45. And then Jesus spends time in the desert, and he's not spending time in the desert on vacation at the end of the, at the, end of the chapter. All that time, people are coming out to him, and they're hearing him preach and teach. So look, that's chapter one. We're done. Okay, let's pray and let's go to lunch. You know I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> it just ain't going to happen. I'm a Baptist preacher. Not going to happen. Okay. No, that is ultimately uh, the, the life of Jesus Christ. And remember, Mark is presenting Jesus Christ as a servant. And chapter 1 is a great picture of that. Because over and over we see Jesus Christ serving. He's doing, doing, doing. He, he uh, as the CEO of salvation, he hits the ground running. And his life and ministry is portrayed by Mark in an amazing way. And it almost seems to me like Mark 2 is the first time Mark takes a breath. Okay. And he shares a story in chapter 2. But we have all this ground to cover. And quite honestly... Because I'm a Baptist preacher, I wanted to stop at each one of these things. This morning, I, there's a wonderful message right at the beginning in the baptism of Jesus, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, the temptation of Jesus Christ. And here's the honest truth. You could go to all the Gospels. You could put together this beautiful picture of each one of these events, at least a good number of them, and you could preach a message from each one. But then we wouldn't have lunch today. And I'd probably be going, or, or either that, or I'd be going with a series on Mark chapter 1 for 13, 13 months. Well, you know me, 13 years, maybe, never, never know. Could become a long time. So today, the temptation, though the temptation is to get bogged down in individual things, we're going to put on our running shoes. And I'd like to walk through these events and through this, yes, this entire chapter. And I'd like you to see eight pictures of Jesus Christ, eight snapshots, if you would, of Jesus Christ as Mark, I, he's not running, he, he has a purpose. He has in mind this, this goal to help us see this picture of Jesus as a servant. And I'd like you to see these snapshots of Jesus as he serves and see a number of different and learn a number of different lessons from the pictures that we get that Mark gives us in this chapter. And then what I'd like to do, or as we're going through, I'd like to kind of stop and pause because I get tired from running and share with you about four different thoughts from these eight snapshots or pictures that we get of Jesus Christ in this chapter. So I laid out for you what I'm going to do. Uh, we're not voting on it this morning. This is, a, this, is a, this is a monarchy. All right, we're going to do that today, and I hope that, that uh, it's my prayer that Mark chapter 1 will be a great blessing to you as, as we see these be this beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ emerge as the servant, as the one who was just serving all his life. He wasn't just serving when he went to the cross. He was serving in everything that he did and everywhere he went as he did the will of the Father. So let's pray and ask God to help us. 
Dear Father, this morning, as we walk through or as we run through the first chapter of Mark, looking at uh, the, the picture, the beautiful picture he weaves of your son, may we see him as a servant. And I pray that we would learn the lessons that you'd have us to learn from the life of Jesus Christ. And may the portrait that is, and the pictures that are given in each place as he did the will of the Father, may these pictures challenge each listener today. Whatever their need might be, as we really will deal with the whole gamut of, of, of life, I pray that our time would be valuable and helpful and that your spirit would freely work in the lives of people. I need your help. They need your help to understand this truth, and we're looking forward to what you'll do this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these are my running shoes today, and we're going to walk through this chapter, and we're going to see Jesus, and the first picture we get is we see Jesus Christ in verse 9, and it says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John and Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As I said, we could take a lot of time and we could dig into this and we could probably share from the Gospels a wonderful story. But Mark just takes time to share with us Jesus was the one who got baptized by John. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He doesn't tell us much. But there's something that we do learn from these verses, and it's this. Jesus, if you want a snapshot of him, is pictured as the obedient one. You say, well, well what do you mean by that? Well, let me at least make reference to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized and he came to be baptized, John said this, but John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. In other words, he understood that Jesus was the one he was preaching of. In fact, he said in John chapter 3, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So, so he always, always pointing to, and John the Baptist was pointing to, Jesus, the one who should come. And he says, I need to be baptized. But Jesus answered him in Matthew, and he said this, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus Christ was baptized not because he needed his sins forgiven. And by the way, baptism doesn't forgive sins. It doesn't remove anyone's sins. Baptism is only a picture. But baptism, for uh, someone who's been saved, is a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a picture to, to a, a lost world and to believers that I have trusted in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And when Jesus Christ came into this earth, as his ministry began, right at the beginning, Jesus said... I'm going to be obedient to the Father. This is a matter of obedience. This is a matter of righteousness. And so the first picture we get of Jesus Christ is as the obedient servant or the obedient son of God. And he is the obedient one. He is the one that did always the things that pleased the Father. It began here in verses 9, 10, and 11. It, it goes through this entire chapter, through the entire book, all the way through the death, the burial. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did always those things which pleased the Father. The first snapshot we get in verses 9, 10, and 11. Jesus is the obedient one. But we have to move on. Because again, we've got to run through this. And verse 12 and 13, it says, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. 
And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him. The second picture we have is Jesus Christ and his obedience is going to be tested as he's out in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but if I miss a meal, I'm really hurting afterwards. I'm hungry and I'm hungry all afternoon and I want to eat or whenever I happen to skip a meal. Jesus has been without food for, for 40 days. And Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. In fact, we read in other portions of Scripture that that was the reason he went, to be tempted of the devil. Three different temptations are talked about, but Mark doesn't spend any time on those, so we, don't, we can't afford ourselves the time to spend on those. But here's what we do know. Jesus did not sin. And actually, the portrait of Jesus Christ is Jesus as the victorious one. Or I, would, I think a better picture is Jesus the sinless one. And it wasn't just here in verses 12 and 13 when Jesus was the sinless one, but it was through his entire life. In him was no sin, the Bible says. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. He wasn't born with a sin nature he did not sin throughout his life. He had brothers and he didn't sin. Can you believe that? Come on, seriously. He had sisters and he didn't sin. I, I just don't understand that. I mean, I, I, can't, I, I can hardly make it when my sister's here for a few days without some sort of sin, you know? Or my sister will tell stories. So she's sinning too. And, you know, it's just brothers and sisters cause all sorts of problems. Jesus never sinned. He was a sinless one. And this story about him in the wilderness being tempted wasn't the only time Christ was tempted, but he went for that reason. And he proved himself, and the picture is given of him is the one who was the perfect one, the sinless one, who did what was right. He was victorious over sin. So we have the obedient one in verses 9, 10, and 11. In verses 12 and 13, we see Jesus as the, sin, as the victorious one or as the sinless one. And I love that because it means so much to us. And here's again, I want to go off and preach on the subject, but let me just share one other verse. Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the Bible tells us something that came as a result of Christ's sinlessness or his victory over sin. The Bible says, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, if it stopped there, that's a, a wonderful picture. But verse 16 is so precious if you know him as your Savior. Because in verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as the victorious one, as the one who pictures that and who lived that in his life, he gives us as well great hope that he will help us to be victorious. He was the victorious servant, the sinless servant, a beautiful picture of him. Verses 14 and 15, as we continue our race. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And here the portrait is Jesus the preaching one. We have Jesus the obedient one. We have Jesus the victorious one, but we have Jesus the preaching one. In fact, look at verses 21 and 22. We'll skip a little bit. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. 
Not only that, but you can see in verse 39 of this chapter, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. So Jesus Christ was the preaching one. Actually, quite honestly, the first mention here in verses 14 and 15 we'll come back to, but there are a number of things that we find that are interesting. In each one of these preaching examples, as Mark walks us through the life of Jesus Christ and he begins, well, he hits the ground running, as we've said. He gives us three different pictures of his preaching. First, we find the way he preached. He preached doctrinal messages, verses 21 and 22. He entered in the Sabbath day. He taught, and it says they were astonished at his doctrine. He taught them the truth of God. He taught them the word of God. He wasn't given his opinions. He wasn't given his own ideas. He wasn't trying to share what he thinks about life. He was, well, being the word of God, he shared the very word of God with people. He preached the word of God. So he was the preaching one. It was doctrinal preaching. People knew what they should believe, and they were told it powerfully so that they might change their ways because he spoke with authority. But not only that, in verse 39, we're given a picture of where he preached. He preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. You know, every time Jesus Christ had opportunity, he preached. He was preaching all the time, even in the wilderness. It talks about that in the desert places. People came to him, and what did Jesus do? Preached, because that was his ministry. That was his life. He wanted everyone to know the gospel, and that's why I bring your attention back to verses 14 and 15, the first time we see this picture of Jesus Christ. And in this picture of Jesus Christ as the preaching one, he preaches a powerful message and he tells you what you need to know. And here's the message of the gospel. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. He is the preaching one. So let's take a breath. At least I need to. Um, I, I get tired running. I, I don't even like to walk, you know, but I get tired running. So let's stop running and pause and reflect. Three snapshots of Jesus Christ, the obedient one, doing the will of the Father and doing it throughout his, his entire life, the sinless one or the victorious one, the second snapshot, the third snapshot, the preaching one who is saying, repent and believe the gospel. And, and, and there's something for us in that message then. And the response that we ought to have is this. Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is the sinless Son of God as the sinless Son of God, as the perfect one, as the one who fulfilled all that the Father laid out for him, he was the one who could give his life and pay for the sins of the world and die on the cross. The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, that he provided a way for sinful people, and that includes everyone because all men are sinners. He provided a way for sinful people to be made right with God and to have a home in heaven be forgiven and have a relationship with God. And that way is not through the deeds that we do. It's not through the good that we do. It's not through baptism. It's not through any act that we could possibly do because we are sinners and hopeless and cannot get to heaven on our own. But Jesus Christ, this beautiful picture, these three pictures that are given up to him, of, of him show us that he is the one that can give us eternal life. He is the one that offers as a gift eternal life. And he says, look, you need, to have, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. A lot of people have their minds mixed up when it comes to the matter of salvation. They think that they can get to heaven by what they do. And God says, look, you've got to repent. You've got to change your mind. You've got to change your thinking. 
You can't get to heaven by what you do because you're a sinner and your sin has to be paid for and you can't pay for your sin by doing good. The only way sin can be taken care of is if it's forgiven by someone. And the only one that can do that is Jesus Christ. And this perfect sinless one died on the cross, was buried and rose again so that you might have life. And his message, his preaching message, is a message that we still need today. Repent, have a change of mind, and believe the good news. Christ died for your sins. And if you will receive that gift, then you can become part of the family of God, have eternal life. That's how simple it is. That is how basic it is. And so many people confuse it today. Some people, so many people need their mind changed to understand what the Bible teaches and what Jesus preached through his life. Believe the good news that I'm come, that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the words of Jesus Christ himself. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so we pause after three pictures, and we get a pic uh, an important message that we need to glean. There's good news that if you'll believe, you can have eternal life. And if you're here and you've never done that, th there would be no better day today and there would be no better thing you could possibly do than to learn from verses 9 to 15 of Mark chapter 1 and follow the admonition of Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. But we got to start running again because we won't get anywhere, or at least we won't get past verse 15 unless we do. And verse 16 says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. By the way, you know, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? You don't cast your net into the sea unless you're a fisher. I'm sorry, just sometimes the obvious is, is so amazing. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, uh, thence he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And, and straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. In verses 16 to 20, we have a, a great picture of Jesus, and he's pictured as the life-changing one. You say, well, wait a second. He hasn't changed any lives yet. No, he hasn't. But he did say something in, uh, in verse 17. He said, come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. If I were to ask you what is the message of verses 16 to 20 and what did Jesus call them to, most of you might say to be soul winners because that's often how this passage is preached. It's not what Jesus called them to. He called them to follow. And in following, he would make them fishers of men. The portrait of Jesus Christ here in these verses is a portrait of one who can change people from the inside out. You say, well, did these men become fishers of men? Whoa, yes. Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I mean, the first half of the book of Acts is all about the apostles. Peter. James, John, especially we see Peter and John preaching the gospel in place after place after place, and they became fishers of men. Here's why. Because Jesus is a life-changing one. 
He's the one who can take a life, no matter what it is. These guys were fishermen. In fact, they, it, there was a remark made in the book of Acts as they looked at Peter and John, and they said they were ignorant men. Now, that wasn't trying to be mean to those people. It was true. They were fishermen. They were, you know, they were the rough characters of this world. They didn't have degrees. They weren't, they weren't people that had been trained in the colleges and had some, you know, had their, they had their Bachelor of Arts degree. These were fishermen. These were the rough guys, the tough guys, if you would. They were the, they were the, 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 okay, the unlearned, the untrained, other than in fishing. They were good fishers, but nothing, but, but this was it. They were, um, they were just people who were plain, simple people, but Jesus changed their lives. Jesus, the life-changing one. The preacher said this. He said, in a small fishing village in Galilee, a sign once hung, or at least I can imagine that a sign once hung with the usual message for the neighbors, gone fishing. While out on the sea, two brothers threw in their nets, wiping the sweat from a warm morning. The sea seemed to flow through their blood. They were experts in their field, able to mend nets and double time and pull in enough fish to keep the local market economy flowing. In the account in the book of Mark, Jesus simply calls them. Scholars tell us, and who cares what the scholars say, he goes on in the story, but he says when Jesus calls them, he uses his artistic tongue. He borrows the idea of fishing and spins a metaphor to capture the imagination of these fishermen and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Though the brothers did not know what all that, of that entailed, they knew it was enough and they followed. So they left their nets of many years and followed Jesus along the shore. Then the preacher said, I can imagine their sign several days later, still hanging on the outside door of, their, of the village where they have their business. Gone fishing. It was still true but with different kinds of nets and for a different kind of fish. And the reason it was true is because Jesus is the life-changing Savior. He's the one who can take a person and make them what they never were before. And yes, in our fourth picture, we're going to take a moment and we're going to stop running and we're going to pause and reflect. This snapshot of Jesus demands a response and the response is not, be a soul winner. The response is, I will follow Jesus Christ. I want him to change my life. You know what's amazing to me? Is we're living in a day now where everyone is encouraged to go to doctors, to go to, to all sorts of people to get their lives changed. When Jesus is the one who can change lives. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't medical needs that people have. In fact, uh, medical doctors have done a lot of good things. Ask Brother Farrington, looks like the surgery was successful and, and, uh, and the, a lot of the pain that he's been experiencing, um, uh, still got recovery from the surgery, but those things have changed because medical doctors have been given a lot of knowledge by God so they can, they can do amazing things. But there are a lot of people who are looking for help to change themselves from the inside from people that have no business and cannot help them. Jesus is the one that can change a person. He did that with each one of these followers, the ones talked about in this passage. Their lives were revolutionized. They were changed. They were timid men, ignorant men, as far as their knowledge of truth and everything else. And in fact, the Bible says they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Jesus is the life-changing one. 
And what message that brings to us today, if you're part of the family of God, is this. Look, Jesus can change your life. Follow him. So it says, I can't be a witness for Christ, because that's often how we approach a passage like this. And we say, you need to become a fisher of men. But God doesn't say become a fisher of men. God says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, because Jesus changes the life. So you say, I don't have the ability to be a witness. I don't have the ability to win over this sin of this temptation. I don't have the ability to win over this area of my life. I don't have the ability to change myself here. And God says, that's okay. I do. Follow me. And so for everyone in this room who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, the message today to you would be, see the portrait of Jesus Christ as the, the changer of men. And let him change you. And, and, and stop seeking to try to do a bunch of things and start following. I, I believe sometimes we do a disservice in Christianity when we focus only on, here's what you need to do to be a soul winner. Here's what you need to do to change this. When sometimes our greatest need is to sit at the feet of Jesus and follow him. Learn from him and let him change us as we walk with him and we do the things he would have us to do. So Jesus is the life-changing one. Verses 23 to 34. I'm going to skip a whole, no, I'm not skipping anything. We're going to read these verses. And in these verses, we have a great picture with actually, I call it like a multiple snapshots in this. I don't even know how many we could say. Verse 23 says this, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had, uh, spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed in so much they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commandeth even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and, all, uh, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. In verses 23 to 34, we have event after event, in fact, numerous events here that take place where Jesus Christ proves himself, and this is a wonderful portrait, as the all-powerful one. And so we have an opportunity to, well, I guess we just keep stop running, all right? But the third point and the third picture that we get and the third lesson we get from the all-powerful one is that we need to trust him. Listen, here we have Jesus Christ, and, and he has, he has a, a sick a sick mother-in-law. He has a bunch of diseased people. We, he has people who are possessed with devils, and Jesus heals everyone. He deals with everyone. He takes care of every need. He is the all-powerful one. There's nothing beyond his ability. 
In fact, throughout the book of Mark, throughout the entire Gospels, we see him uh, not just portrayed, but we see his life as the one who is the all-powerful one. And Mark wants us to know there's nothing Jesus cannot do. So we have a guy possessed and takes care of that. And then he goes over to, you know, to the, to the house of family and he takes care of uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And then after he takes care of her, the people hear about it. The people all gather together and late into the night, Jesus Christ is just healing people. He's at the door of the house and one after another come. People who are, are possessed and people who are sick and, you know, everyone, whatever the need was, Jesus takes care of it because he's the all-powerful one. And my friends today, Christians need to see that picture of Jesus. Now, he can heal. He doesn't always heal everyone. In fact, it doesn't tell us that all the people were, were healed. It says he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases. He hasn't promised to take care of every affliction. There are some preachers who say that. God doesn't ever want you to be sick. It's ridiculous. That's not taught in the Bible. In fact, it's actually contrary to Bible teaching. But we do know this. Jesus has the ability, and Jesus is the all-powerful one. And the picture and the response we ought to have to this beautiful portrait of Jesus is to trust him. Look, if he can take care of those things, seriously, what do you have going on in your life that he can't take care of? What, what is beyond his ability? What is beyond his strength? But I got so many things taking place at work and, and my job's on the line. Okay, so what do you need? If Jesus could meet the need of, of a leper later on, if Jesus could meet the needs of all these people in, in a matter of one day, one day, he could take care of all these people, then, then why do you think that your difficulties and your struggles and the things that are going on in your life, he doesn't have the ability to take care of? He's the all-powerful one beautiful portrait of him in these verses in fact uh, again i would say there's multiple snapshots you know we have the snapshot that's taken in the synagogue and then someone takes a picture while he's at at uh you know peter's house and then he takes a picture while jesus is at the door and each one of these pictures just reminds us every time jesus can do anything trust him christian trust him he's the all powerful one but our story isn't done we we, we got to get the get the shoes going again because in verse 35 he says and in the morning rising up a great while before day he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed and jesus the picture of him now is the praying one here is the son of god in the midst of an extremely busy time have you ever said something like this i don't have time for my bible today you ever been there? You ever said, oh, man, I got so many things going on today. I just, I just can't afford it, and I haven't gotten much sleep. I just need to get going, and I got to take care of this, and I got to take care of that. Here's Jesus Christ. Do you see the picture that, that park, that park, that park, yes, that, that John Mark. I don't know how I got that all messed up. That John Mark gives us of Jesus Christ late into the night. In fact, some even say through the entire evening, through the entire night, all the way until... He got up to go out to pray. Now, we can't prove that. The scriptures don't prove that. But we do know this. It was late into the night. It had to be. It was evening when Jesus Christ is healing all these people. 
So look, if anyone had an excuse to not get up early the next day and go out and pray, don't you think it'd be Jesus? I've been so busy. And by the way, he would have already known because he knows all things that tomorrow is going to be a busy day too. In fact, the, the apostles come and say, hey, all men are looking for you. And Jesus says, you're right. And I need to go and I need to preach in other places. So right after this, his whole day is full again. And then we have the leper and we got all these stories and we got all these things going on and his life is so busy and yet Jesus took time to stop, to talk with his father, to he forsook sleep for what was most important. And that gave him a strength for the service that he needed to do for Jesus Christ. And there's a powerful lesson for us, but a beautiful portrait of one who made time to pray. Jesus is the praying one. Verse 36, And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Jesus is, I was going to say the preaching one again, you know. But, you know, I guess you could have a picture, the same picture, right? But, I, I, but then the more I thought about it, and this is an important point that one writer brought to my attention as I read what some different men said about this passage. Look at what Peter says. Simon comes to him, verse 36, as Jesus is out in this solitary place and he's praying. He comes and he says in verse 37, all men seek for thee. What was going on? And what did Jesus say and what was the response? The first question we kind of have to answer is, why were all men seeking for him? And the answer may seem a little bit different to you, but they were all seeking him because all night, the last night, what was he doing? He was healing. So they were looking to Jesus as the, the healer, as the one who's going to make them better. I mean, they knew people who had devils who had them cast out and people who were sick and everything else, and there were still sick people there, and there were still people who had devils, and there were still people who had needs. There were still people who needed uh, things resolved and taken care of for, from Jesus. And so Simon comes and he says, uh, the people seek you. And, and so what would you think Jesus would do? You'd think Jesus would go back and say, okay, yeah, let's do this. We can help people. We can heal people. We can meet this need. But rather than agree with Simon, look at what he says in verse 38. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. A writer told it this way. He said, while my mother was battling cancer, I took a long and hard look at the problem of suffering. As I fell into step with my mother as best I could during her journey with this vicious disease, many thoughts and discussions ensued regarding the plague of sin upon humankind, that no one is exempt, the inevitability of death. But he said, the scripture always provides safe places of comfort and hope. And I found one in the life of Jesus in the book of Mark. As he records this incident in his opening chapters, he paints a portrait of the Messiah that's startling. 
Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. Shortly after, many in the town bring the sick and demon-possessed to be healed by Jesus. The text notes they came after sunset. So Jesus toils into the night, serving, healing, transforming the bodies of disease-ridden victims. And while it was still dark, and he says apparently he worked all night, Jesus goes to a quiet place to be with his father. While in the town, the disciples of Jesus are surrounded by more pleading people to heal their sicknesses, to cure their diseases. And the disciples want to find Jesus, and so they go to the solitary place and finding him say, everyone's looking for you. Kind of the world's found a healer, a physician, to steal away and take away their medical problems. And they rush to the one who could cure their pain. But Jesus gives a halting reply. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach. That's why I've come. And the preacher said, I can imagine their countenance. Here are these disciples of Jesus, these new disciples. Their faces fallen. Their eyes are perplexed. They can't figure it out. What is wrong with this man? He could do so much good. Perhaps their mind seized upon, uh, upon the word that he brought out to preach. How is that going to cure anyone? I mean, people don't get cured from cancer, leprosy, or hepatitis by preaching. And here's what he said. Jesus, the wisest man who ever lived, lived, understood something about the reality that the disciples and we forget. All healed people will become sick again. The blind will become blind again, if not in life, at least in death. Because death is always the final victor. That is, death will be victor if Jesus doesn't preach. Jesus knew that people needed something far more than healing. That they needed a relationship with him. And their greatest need was not healing from disease. Their greatest need was a relationship with God. And so Jesus stood his ground with the disciples and he insisted that instead of physical healing, there must be spiritual healing of the soul of men and women across the countryside of Israel. That's why I've come. And he went about proclaiming that news. And the portrait, I believe we could, we could say here, is Jesus is truly the need-meeting servant. Now, I found it interesting that sometimes in life we become focused on the things that are not as important. And he said, this was a lesson that my mom learned all the way until she died. That, that we need to understand that the most important need that people have is not their physical needs. Although Jesus did that in many cases, in many ways. But the greatest need people have is a relationship with God that only comes one way through Jesus Christ and it was a great lesson that he learned and that his mother learned understanding this that God may not choose to heal but God will meet the needs the greatest need that a person has even if they suffer through life we conclude our book, we come to the, we're, we're still running here, in verses 40 to 45. And we, 
we see a leper that comes to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And I love the words of verse 41 because they give us the, the portrait I'd like you to see. And Jesus, say the next three words with me. Verse 41, you see it there? And Jesus moved with compassion. Jesus is not only the need-meeting servant of God, but Jesus is the compassionate one. Here's an extremely taxing time of ministry in the life of Jesus Christ, traveling, preaching, serving, and a leper comes on the scene and he begs Jesus to do something. And here's a man that could have said something like, you know what, I'm tired. I need some time to myself. I got a lot going on. It says Jesus was moved with compassion. He was touched at the appeal of this man. He cared. He, he acted uh, as, as one who genuinely cared for others. So can we stop running and pause and reflect on these last few pictures, these last three snapshots? They really demand a response. Okay, first, Jesus is the praying one. Make time in your relationship with God. Make time every day in your relationship with God. Because you desperately need it in order to minister and to serve and to be what God wants you to be in a given day. Don't excuse it. Don't push it aside. Don't brush it aside. Don't consider it unimportant. Make it the most important thing that you do in your day. If I have to lose sleep, whatever it takes, I am going to be like my Lord and Savior who is the praying one who said... I got a lot going on. I could keep healing people. I could spend the rest of my night. I could probably spend days here, but I am going to take time and I'm going to talk with my father. That is the most important thing to me and it's vital to my being an effective minister for Jesus Christ. So the picture that we have is to make time in your relationship with God. The second challenge, and I, actually we could probably put it all this way, to emulate him. To be discerned about the real need of men and seek to meet it. Sometimes we can get so caught up in trying to help people with this and help people with that. And by the way, we can get caught up in causes that are good causes doing good things. Look, wasn't it not good that Jesus was healing people? Wasn't it a good thing? And you think, well, that's, that's what he should focus on. But that wasn't the real need of men. And sometimes Christians, I, I've seen, and I know I've been tempted at times to get so caught up in programs or this or that or this that I forget that the greatest need of people is a relationship with God. And that my focus can never lose sight of the fact, no matter what we do in ministry, no matter what we do as a church, no matter what I do as a Christian, that there is a far greater need than, than providing money for someone to get food, than trying to help someone get medical help, although they're all good things and things that Jesus didn't forsake but there's something that's most important we should never lose sight of. And that people have needs, spiritual needs in their relationship with God. And that, my friends, is what our life is supposed to be about. And so emulate him. Emulate his prayer life. Emulate his need meeting. But then emulate his compassion. Here's a man that's so busy he could have just pushed this guy off and said, lepers, I don't have time for them. Dirty, filthy. 
And yet Jesus, moved with compassion, does what he can. And we allow God to touch our hearts. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? Isn't it? You know, the temptation was, was to just take each one. But when you see this beautiful portrait of Jesus in this one chapter, all these different things that, that he did, just showing himself to be the perfect servant. There's such a, a great picture to be learned from. And it all starts with a relationship with God. If you're not part of his family, you need to repent and believe the gospel. If you're part of his family, then learn from him. See these pictures of him. And ask God to help you to be that kind of person. Learn from him beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ. Pictures, numerous pictures given throughout this entire chapter that challenge everyone in this room. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.